Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. dollar held gains, trading at multi-year highs against the euro, the yen and the Australian dollar. The ECB takes a step closer to Fed-style quantitative easing and Disney earnings met analysts' expectations. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll talk about the ECB's and the Bank of Japan's commitment to further stimulus. We'll also discuss Disney's earnings and the launch of The Economist Espresso. It's first daily in 171 years. Our guests today include Andrew Kasser of DZ Bank, Richard Germ of the Bank of Singapore, John Micklethwaite, the editor of The Economist, and our media correspondent, James Ross of Lightning International. Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, Good morning, Renita. And the quick Friday fact this morning is that the year after the U.S. midterm election, is nearly always a good one. In fact, since 1920, the average increase the year after has been 15%. So what you're saying is from here on, the only way is up? If you believe this mumbo-jumbo, it certainly is. Are we too late to buy? No, I don't think so. All Not right. those figures. Well, we're going to start the weekend with some shopping. All right, let's take a look at the top stories. U.S. stocks gained as the ECB rose um, and vowed to um, increase stimulus efforts if needed, and a drop in American jobless claims bolstered optimism in the economy. Cyclical shares, that's uh, those that are tied to the pace of economic growth, were among the biggest gainers. The Dow Jones rose 70 points to 17,554. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq also gained two-fifths of a percent to close at 2,000. 2031 and 4,638, respectively. U.S. Treasuries currently yielding at 2.35%. Richard, how did markets do elsewhere? Well, overnight in Europe, the markets took ECB President Draghi's comments slightly better than expected, with almost all markets ending up in the green. The German DAX was up two-thirds of a percent at 9,377. And the French CAC was up a half a percent to 4,228. The FTSE was just up a tick to 6,551. Yesterday in Asia, the Nikkei was down uh, 0.9% at last. It's been going up uh, fairly solidly over the last week. uh, And that ended at 16,792. Shanghai was up uh, 0.3% to 2,426. In fact, uh, Hong Kong bucked the trend, also ending down at 0.2% to 23,649, leaving it down just 1% for the week so far. Richard, what about the ECB's decision to keep interest rates unchanged? I mean, certainly that's the big story of the day, yes? Well, it didn't come as a surprise, but it did lift sentiment. Uh, Markets had begun to doubt ECB President Mario Draghi's commitment to stimulating the floundering European economy. Following up on the decisions of October 2nd, 2014, we last month started purchasing covered bonds under our new program. We will also soon start to purchase asset-backed securities. The programs will last for at least two years. Together with a series of targeted longer-term refinancing operations to be conducted until June 2016, these asset purchases will have a sizable impact on our balance sheet. Well, there was plenty more of that in the press conference, uh, but he did reveal that he had unanimous backing from the ECB Council for his €1 trillion 
buyback package to inject liquidity into the economy. Uh, Super Mario, as he's called, had previously been criticised for making policy statements off the cuff, but he now seems to have mended his bridges with the council. Now, to discuss this further, we're joined by Andrew Kosser, who's Chief Market Strategist at uh, DZ Bank in Hong Kong. Good morning, Andy. Morning. Um, Andy, uh, I always think this situation in Europe is a bit like a soap opera. It's like Monty Python's dead parrot sketch, where uh, uh, an unhappy man goes into a shop to exchange his dead parrot and comes out with a talking dog. Um, Here we have Mario uh, basically saying, yes, we're going to do something. He does nothing, so everyone gets disappointed. And then he comes back and says he does something, and everyone's happy again. Where are we going on this? The ECB is really at the moment the sole source of hope for the eurozone economy the outlook for economic growth in the coming couple of years has turned worse in the last six months inflation is still well below target and the policy responses that one could hope to see to restore the eurozone to a more optimistic growth path are being somewhat limited particularly the fiscal policy side is being blocked by conservative with a small c attitudes, particularly from Berlin, and there's very limited scope to increase public spending and debts because many countries already have budget deficits which are over the EU limits, and they have outstanding debt-to-GDP ratios which are, in some cases, worryingly high and in most cases have been rising for the last five years. So that means monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work, and that's where the ECB comes in. They've lowered interest rates over the course of the last couple of years or so, maybe three years, to now levels which are, well, for the main refinancing rate, 0.05%, and we're even with a negative deposit rate. So that's not really got the Eurozone economy back to life. So where do they go from here, Andy? Unconventional policy, which is following in the footsteps of the Fed and the Bank of England. But there's been a lot of criticism about them buying bonds, and in, in Europe they're looking at buying private bonds. But some of them in markets that aren't particularly good, such as uh, Greece and Italy. This is indeed a tricky issue, but the markets for such bonds that that exist in Greece are really rather small in terms of size, and I think the ECB would be trying to avoid buying too much of those. However, the uh, the, uh, the markets that they're looking at at the moment, corporate bond, uh, sorry, covered bonds, those are backed by high-quality assets, mortgages or loans to the public sector. So those have very little credit risk, but the ECB does not want to add a great deal of credit risk, for example, by buying junk-rated Greek corporate bonds. It may have to buy a few, but it doesn't want to buy very many. In the longer term, well, longer term, in a matter of months, the DZ view is that the ECB will be forced to follow the Fed and be buying European government bonds on a fairly significant scale. Andy, um, some analysts, including uh, Bill Gross of Janus Capital, have made the claim that, you know, QE is not what's needed as much as fiscal stimulus. And um, that's what the ECB should really be focusing on. What do you make of that? In an ideal world, I think Mr. Gross's view might well be correct. But unfortunately, the ECB does not set fiscal policy and has no influence upon it. It only sets monetary policy. And the fiscal policy side is determined by politicians. And they are sticking to the rules that they have just created for themselves in the course of the Eurozone debt crisis. Speaking of politicians, Andy, how come Germany's come into the party? Because there was a lot of talk uh, earlier in the week that they were spitting mad at Draghi actually announcing things that they hadn't actually agreed to. 
I think the Bundesbank is very well aware of the dangers of low inflation, excessively low inflation, in, in an eco economic zone which has very high debt levels. It's not that far from a debt deflation scenario, which would be very negative. And I would assume that Mr Draghi has had some fairly serious conversations with the head of the Bundesbank, Dr Weidmann, in order to explain what he's thinking and how he intends to go about it uh, to get Mr Weidmann on board so to say. Okay, so this resounding commitment to QE appears to be the way central banks are going these days, uh, all except for the US, that is. The Bank of Japan has also gotten in on the act. Let's bring in Chris Oliver to talk about this. Chris, what can you tell us about how Japan's actions have affected markets and the economy? Well, we're still waiting to find out exactly how the, the, Japan, uh, the BOJ's decision last Friday will affect things. Certainly, it sent stocks up higher, and it sent the uh, yen lower, especially against the dollar. Uh, we actually have a special guest on the phone. Uh, it's Richard Jerram, Bank of Singapore's uh, chief economist. Uh, Richard was uh, based formerly in Tokyo, where he covered Japanese markets uh, extensively. So we just want to get uh, Richard on the phone now. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. So w what do you make of the BOJ's latest move? I think it's very encouraging. I think they've um, basically recognized that there's been an improvement in the economy, but the improvement's not been enough. Uh, they're basically not going to hit their inflation target within an acceptable period of time. And so they've figured, well, we, I guess we need to crank it up another level. And as they've done that, then I think you've seen a very encouraging move, uh, both in domestic financial markets and probably more importantly in the exchange rate as well. So just to recap for listeners, the new BLJ plan will expand the monetary base on an annual basis of uh, about 80 trillion yen. That's 704 billion U.S. dollars. So this is just an expansion of a previous uh, target of 60 to 70 trillion yen uh, a year. So that sounds like an awful lot of money. I know the previous uh, BOJ uh, QE effort was larger on a, on a scale than the, than the U.S. Uh, QE4. Uh, are there any risks to this that uh, we could see some sort of unexpected consequences? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, I think it's important to emphasize the scale of what they're doing. I mean, the, the amount that they're going to purchase as a share of the economy over the next 12 months is about equivalent to the entire U.S. Uh, QE program, the one, two, and three programs. So it really is a remarkable scale. And as you say, there, there must be uh, some risk involved. I mean, one risk, I think, is that you do just lose control of your currency entirely and it, uh, it falls much faster than perhaps you've been anticipating. I think the other risk, uh, longer-term risk, is that there is no real uh, pretense of having an exit strategy from this policy. I mean, the Fed all the way along has had a, a reasonably credible uh, view on how they're going to manage uh, the exit from this uh, QE policy. Uh, the Bank of Japan is still basically jumping in with its eyes shut and has, uh, has no plans for an exit. So that obviously does raise concerns about inflation, about uh, extreme weakness in the yen. But I think they've just taken the view, and I think probably fairly sensibly, uh, that after 20 years of uh, deflation and miserable growth, uh, they did need something to try to rev the economy up. And uh, I think they've, they've really gone for perhaps the least of uh, a range of bad alternatives. But Richard, isn't it uh, too much too late? Uh, I mean, how much can it, Mrs. Watanabe keep on funding the Japanese recovery? Uh, I think it would obviously have been better if they'd had a more proactive policy 10 or 15 years ago, but I, I think you've got to take the view it's never too late to do something sensible. And the deficit is coming down, and if they can get some nominal growth into the economy, 
then they, there is some uh, possibility of improving government finances if they can improve things enough to raise taxes and improve the nominal GDP number. They've got some hope of stabilizing public finances. Of course, the other thing they're trying to do, I think, is to, to scare Mrs. Watanabe out of her bank deposits. Her bank deposits are um, about one and a half times the size of the economy. So if you can get that money moving, and if you can get it moving either into productive economic activities, if you think the real value is going to go down, or if you can get it moving into uh, risk assets, then it's going to make your job uh, an awful lot easier at the central bank. R- Richard, after the announcement last week, we saw the Japanese yen weakened uh, to its lowest level against the dollar since 2007. So what are the repercussions here in terms of a new round of currency wars in Asia? We know that China, for example, can't be cheering this news. They're going to see their own competitiveness uh, vis-a-vis Japan's manufacturing actually eroded by this. Of course, the biggest competitor in the region in terms of similar industrial structures is Korea. And we've seen overnight a high-level Korean official uh, saying that they're going to try to guide the currency weaker uh, to try to maintain competitiveness against the yen. And, of course, as Korea weakens its currency, then that's going to, as you say, put pressure on China as well, where there is some overlap in the industrial sectors with with Korea. So I think there is some uh, domino effect around Asia, and I think it it does suggest to me that uh, you're not going to see uh, renminbi appreciating against the dollar over the next 12 months. And if the economy there does begin to struggle a little bit, you, you might even see them starting to guide it lower by uh, a few percentage points. And so I, I think that's, uh, that's a complication, but I think it's not something which is going to deter Japan from uh, pursuing this type of strategy. All right. Thank you very much. That's Richard Jerome. He's Bank of Singapore's chief economist. And thank you, Chris. All right. Well, it's time to take a look at the numbers. Richard, can you bring us up to date? Certainly. The big action has been on the currency markets this week with dollar strength sweeping all before. Um, The euro's uh, slumped. It's currently at uh, $1.2376. The yen sank to $115.20 and the pound to $1.58 or $12.27 Hong Kong dollars to the pound. Well, today The Economist launches The Economist Espresso, its uh, first ever daily edition to provide readers with a concise morning briefing. The Economist Espresso was developed to serve as a complement to the weekly edition of the publication and will perform the same function as The Economist, distilling what's important from the news and explaining what it means and providing uh, readers with a filter on world affairs. Uh, Joining us now to discuss this is the editor of The Economist, John Micklethwaite. Uh, good morning, John. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, good morning. Thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing. So, John, 171 years uh, later, The Economist has decided to come out with a daily. Tell us why. Well, because we thought there was an opportunity to do something short and sharp, and we've called it The Economist Espresso, um, that many of the people who read us use digital technology, use phones, and particularly early in the morning, um, the idea is this is launched every morning at 6 a.m. Uh, Singapore and Beijing time um, in Asia, 6 a.m. in London, and 6 a.m. in uh, New York. And the idea is to grab us a slice of people's times there, but to do something that is short and sharp and opinionated, and above all, I would say, finishable. So... Um, I'm curious, John. I mean, there's a lot of dailies out there, and the need for The Economist Espresso, has this come out of competition with other media, or is this something that readers have actually been requesting? 
It's something readers have asked us about. Um, in terms of kind of competition, we've slightly done the same as we did with the iPad edition as we sat and looked. Yes, there's some other apps come out. But our one tends to be very different to the extent that most people's apps at the moment tend to be ones saying, here's our front page and go off and read the following articles. Our one says, you know, here are five things you know, need to know today. And we tell you about them each in about 150 words. So altogether, reading the entire thing takes, well, our digital editor claims it takes two and a half minutes. But John. Um, I think it'd be more honest to say it takes around five because he's an unusually fast reader. Um, yes, that, that's maybe harder for the rest of us. Um, John, how's this all going to be paid for? You know, if you're a subscriber to The Economist, do you get it free or can you subscribe separately or how will it work? Well, the first month, um, you can go and download Espresso for free. And then after that, if you're a subscriber, you get it for free. And if you're not, it costs you in US dollars, it costs um, uh, $4, $3.99, a crucial cent difference every month. And the idea is that we think two sorts of people are going to go for it. We think that existing subscribers, it will work well with what they get every week from us. It's, it feels very similar to The Economist. It's written by exactly the same people. Um, and it's designed to be kind of short and opinionated, as I said. So in terms and of we also think it'll bring in new, a lot of people who've looked at it so far who aren't necessarily economist readers think it's interesting. So in terms of opinionated, um, that's useful. But will you also have daily numbers? Yes, there are three bits in it. There's five slices of saying, here are the five things you need to know today. And then there's an overnight catch-up, almost as good as, you, as your program, which, <clears throat> which tells people exactly what um, has happened overnight so they don't feel as if they're the only person in the room who didn't know that the Malaysian plane had been found or something similar like that. And then there's the numbers of what the markets are like at 6am in the morning with the currencies as well. And then finally, at the end, you get a short screen which says, that's it. And it tells you then you have the, the time and to go off and do something else. OK, it's very uh, refreshing to know, actually, that uh, we have the ability to get an opinionated piece in the morning. I think so many of, uh, you know, so much of what we have out there media-wise is very straight reporting of the facts, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, it's nice to know what the writers and what the analysts are saying. John, would you say that this is the biggest thing that differentiates The Economist from its other so-called competitors? I think, actually, it's interesting. When we, when we looked at doing it, we tried to work out what was different about us, and we tried to work out what our characteristics were. And one sort of very obvious is we look at sort of big future trends. We tend to be global, much more global than other people, so we tell you what's happening all the way around the world. We're doing three different editions, but it'll tell you about the world in, those, um, in, 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 in that five minutes. We tend to be opinionated. We've always been... Uh, we, were, we were born as a liberal newspaper to defend free markets and, um, and free thought. And the business model is different as well, to be honest. Uh, what is the business model? Well, our business model has always been one based around circulation. So we have always tried to get people to pay uh, to read The Economist, which we're doing again with this product. Um, but the, and then we turn around and then um, persuade advertisers to advertise on the basis that people have paid and so they'll be much more engaged with it. Than, All right. than other people. But that, I think, is, that's quite a big difference with the rest of our industry, which is always about chasing advertising. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is John Micklethwaite, editor of The Economist. We'll be looking forward to uh, signing up for The Economist Espresso. We'll be, we'll be back to talk about Disney earnings right after this. <laughs>
The Labor Department will stage the Kowloon East Job Fair at the Domain Shopping Mall in Yaotong on November 5th and 6th. Around 60 employers will offer a wide range of positions and accept applications on the spot. Please visit www.jobs.gov.hk or call 2852-4922 for details. Come on, y'all! Well, the time is 8.23 and Disney has reported fourth quarter earnings that narrowly beat expectations as soaring film earnings countered rising costs at ESPN. Profits rose to 89 cents per share, beating the estimate of 88 cents per share, and sales grew by 7.1% to $12.4 billion all meeting projections. Disney chairman and CEO Bob Iger says that there has never been a better time for content creators. I can't predict what it's going to look like in five years, and I certainly can't predict what it's going to look like in 10, is that it's going to continue to evolve. We've seen more evolution in terms of the nature of the multi-channel bundle than revolution. Uh, There's no reason for us to do things that necessarily precipitate its demise. What I can say is that if... Uh, it ends up uh, breaking apart, which we're not predicting. No company is going to be better positioned to take advantage of it than we are because people will buy Disney. They will buy ABC. They will buy ESPN. Uh, Who knows what we're going to ultimately create with Star Wars and with Marvel. But we've got multiple opportunities to create products and reach the consumer directly. And we're not concerned about that world either. Actually, it might be you know, quite a lucrative environment for us. But for now, uh, we've got a multi-channel bundle that is creating tremendous value for us and great value for the consumer. All right, let's bring in our media correspondent, James Ross, the CEO of Lightning International. Good morning, James. Good morning, Renita. So, James, what is Disney doing right, the, you know, that it continues to get all of these great results? Well, it's managed to, uh, to to spread its business across many different areas. You know, obviously from uh, movies right through the theme parks, which are the obvious ones, but also deeper into television uh, and into in, and into interactive. And you know, now now has also brought in so so many other great brands as well. Uh, things like uh, Marvel, of course, uh, with uh, its various uh, superhero characters. Uh, the Star Wars franchise, you know, they've announced today that the uh, the title of the upcoming uh, um, Star Wars, new Star Wars movie is uh, The Force Awakens. And also, you know, Pixar animation, uh, all of these things, uh, and many others as well that are brought under the umbrella. So they really have managed to uh, spread their risk and uh, rely on multiple revenue sources for, for their business. So certainly there's been a lot of focus on the movie properties and the sort of what they're doing there. But there's also been a lot of talk about the theme parks. Uh, Tokyo Disneyland is supposed to be expanding and then Shanghai is scheduled to open. I think it's next year. So, um, you know, how much of the revenue actually comes from the theme parks versus the movie industry and the other properties? Well, a big chunk of the movie, uh, a big chunk of the revenue does come from the theme parks. And you're right that, you know, things are expanding. Um, I think Shanghai might be delayed until 2016, but uh, it's certainly uh, on the way. And yes, the the Japanese parks, which have been uh, pretty small, actually, uh, you know, hopefully will be further expanded. 
what was Euro Disney, Paris Disneyland, that has had um, some struggles and they've been injecting a lot of money into it. But the, the theme park um, business does seem to sort of come in cycles. However, revenues are continuing to grow and attendance is, uh, is high. And the more properties that, that Disney controls, such as Marvel, such as Pixar, such as all of these things, uh, these other companies, they really offer the opportunities to develop new rides, uh, new characters, and most of all, new licensing and merchandising, which is, is a huge business. For Frozen, you know, they've announced that they, they sold uh, uh, three million uh, uh, dresses, princess dresses. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge business, that licensing and, and uh, merchandising business, and is continuing to grow. And, and Disney actually really does this so well across the board. They're so good at monetizing all of the different areas of their business. Okay, James, just one quick question before we wrap up. We, do, we heard earlier from Bob Iger. He's the top guy there. Um, his, has his management style helped? Have over the uh, the last few years, you know, he's the the president, CEO, and chairman now of uh, uh, of Disney. His management style seems to have brought everybody together. You know, he resolved a lot of disputes. Uh, you know, dispute with Roy Disney going back a few years now, and has has seemingly brought all the various parts of the business together, and seems to be driving it forward uh, with one concerted force. Which you know, there was a time when Disney was was a bit disparate, and and, and things were a little bit separated. But there does seem to be that sort of general go forward in one direction and he's really I think could be credited for you know turning this into a company which uh, is turning over 48 billion dollars a year all right thank you so much for joining us this morning that is James Ross our media correspondent James Ross is the CEO of Lightning International so Richard here we are at the close of the week any fun facts to close with well those of you who've uh, sat with small children watching Frozen uh, will know about uh, the protagonist sisters Elsa and Anna something like three million costumes dresses have been sold of those two two characters. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's no good. Surely that can't be any good for people in Hong Kong. I well, mean, Richard, can you imagine going to a party and wearing the same frozen dress as somebody else? It would be a scandal it would for be a, a five-year-old. Ter- terrible scandal. Uh, for a five-year-old and maybe for a 35-year-old, I'm not sure. All right, Richard, uh, give us a quick uh, look ahead at what we should be thinking about next week. Well, the markets still look quite buoyant. Um, the US uh, figures are coming through well. We're going to have some jobs figures tonight, uh, and most people will think they're going to come well as uh, too. So the US is certainly acting as an engine of growth. There is a lot of worry about Europe, but at the end of the day, um, I think the US is going to drag everything up. The- All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks to our guest, Andy Kosser of DZ Bank. Thank you to Chris Oliver, our producer, and to Richard Harris, our co-host for this Friday morning. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is open. It is up uh, seven-tenth of a percent to 1,000, um, sorry, 16,919. Australia's ASX is open. It's up half a percent to 5,506. And Seoul's Kospi is also up three-tenths of a percent to 1,943. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora closing off for Money for Nothing. And uh, let's take a quick look at the weather forecast. For today, it'll be mainly cloudy with a few rain patches. The maximum temperature will be about 24 degrees Celsius. Currently, it is 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Todd Harding. 
Beijing is looking to expand its fight against graft as senior officials from countries in the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Group gather in the capital for a week of meetings aimed at boosting growth and strengthening pan-Pacific trade ties. Our reporter Priscilla Ung, who is in Beijing, explains. Another area that、uh, the different、uh, economies will really want to look at is anti-corruption. There's always been a working group within APEC to fight corruption and improve transparency, and this group is now working on a joint declaration to promote best practice. And the declaration would lay down principles on how to fight corruption and would propose a mechanism、um, on how to pass on relevant information from area one area to another. And it would also call for the tracking of cases between、uh, across borders to make the fight against corruption. A more regional one. There's been a critical response from both China and Tanzania to a conservation group report alleging that Chinese delegates used a state visit by President Xi Jinping to smuggle ivory out of Tanzania. The London-based Environmental Investigation Agency report said thousands of kilograms of ivory, hidden in diplomatic bags, were flown out of Tanzania on President Xi's plane. A Tanzanian government spokesman, Asam Wambeni, dismissed the findings of the report. But it's very unfortunate that a very credible institution like the agency can produce a, a very questionable report.